The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. If you have a framework for dialoguing with all of the parts of yourself, with curiosity, with compassion, then you're going to be able to affect change and you're going to be able to affect sustainable change instead of white knuckling your way through your life. Welcome back to the Next Big Idea Daily. I'm Michael Kovnat, and I'm here again with Britt Frank, author of The Science of Stuck. If you've got a goal in your life, maybe you want to drink less or exercise more, maybe you need to make some changes at work or at home, you surely know that the path toward accomplishing this goal is hardly ever a straight one. More likely, you found that sometimes it's hard to get motivated or the change makes you too anxious. You may even have had this feeling that some part of you doesn't want to accomplish the goal at all, that you're sabotaging yourself. But the thing about self-sabotage, according to Brit, is it doesn't really exist, at least not the way we think. There is no such thing as self-sabotage. And I'm a stickler for language. And so when people come and they say, oh my gosh, I was so close to my goals and I'm sabotaging it, it's really important to know that self-sabotage is designed not to mess up your life, but we self-sabotage in an effort to protect ourselves. And that one gets a lot of pushback as well, because there's certainly no argument that there are behaviors that we participate in that mess up our plans, destroy our relationships, and completely annihilate our sanity. However, self-sabotage is a suboptimal effort at self-protection. And that brings the question, okay, well, what are we being protected from? There are a million reasons that our unconscious may perceive a threat. Self-sabotage may happen because if you achieve that goal, if you get that promotion, if you launch that business, some things are going to have to change. And all change involves a degree of loss. And we are so hardwired for autopilot, for repetition, for pattern seeking, and for habit that the thought of change, even positive change, can create a threat response in the system and cause us to unconsciously, quote, sabotage our behaviors. So knowing that self-sabotage is a suboptimal effort at self-protection, again, doesn't excuse any behavior, but it does explain it. And if we can name accurately the things that we're afraid of, the things that are concerning to us, the things that are going to have to change should we improve our lives, such as losing weight might make someone more attractive. And being attractive can be incredibly threatening if you have trauma in your history. And knowing these things and naming these things are the first and foremost tool to change. It is a fascinating term, self-sabotage. I've always been intrigued by that concept because it seems like, well, how can that be a thing? You know, because obviously we want what's best for ourselves, and yet sometimes we do seem to behave in ways that undermine that. I remember the first time I really thought about this word, just to date myself, I was in college when the uh, Democratic presidential candidate Gary Hart sort of flamed out because of a an extramarital affair. And I remember reading a news article about it that said he seems prone to self-sabotage. And I remember really getting stuck on that idea and like, well, how can that be? He's got all these incentives to become the president and to have this campaign be successful. And yet 
there does seem to be something reckless in his behavior that maybe he can't control, but that he actively works against his interests. And it did get me thinking like, well, why am I not doing all the things I know I could and should do to succeed? I have all these great opportunities, all these great resources, but is there some part of me that doesn't want to succeed, that is scared of succeeding? And that's the piece of me that I have to somehow address. And that's the work, right? The thing is, is before anybody stops doing anything that's not good for them, they have to first contend with, yeah, but you're benefiting from this. You know, like do a cost-benefit analysis and the benefit column should not be blank. If you do a mm -hmm. cost-benefit analysis and your benefit column is blank, go back and do it again until you're willing to get honest with yourself. Because if you don't know what the benefit is, how are you going to ever stop it? You know, the guy yeah. that has the chronic affairs and chronically steps on his own feet, I don't know his personal story, but I guarantee you there has got to be some ambivalence about the career path that he says he wants. And I could understand that there's probably some complicated family dynamics to contend with as well. So it's complicated, but I promise you, your cost-benefit analysis should yield two lists, not one. If you want to stop a behavior, start with, what am I getting from this? Because it's not nothing. It's never nothing. Right. And then maybe you can find healthier ways to address those needs. Exactly. You refer to the internal family system and this idea that we do have multiple parts inside of ourselves, metaphorically. Obviously, they're not different little beings inside us, I don't think, but there are aspects of our personality. Tell me how you think about this complex set of agendas that we all carry within us and how that can tie into this idea of self-sabotage. Is it yeah. maybe that maybe that there are parts of ourselves that want one thing while another part wants another thing, so therefore we are kind of in conflict with ourselves? So the internal family systems model is not, you know, I didn't come up with that. That's Dr. Richard Schwartz. And it's based on the theory that our personality is not the singular thing. It's right. certainly evidence that parts of us feel one way and Parts of us feel a different way, which is why we often feel at war with ourselves, which is why we do things we say we don't want to do and we don't do things that we say we do want to do. And I love the internal family systems model because it provides a framework for dialoguing in a compassionate, effective way with all of these competing parts of our personality in a way that does not require us to try to beat up or shut up or silence or exile or banish these parts of ourselves, I could easily sit here and be like, I hate the part of me that did drugs. Oh my God, meth, gross. I hate the part of me that did these terrible things and whatnot. The behavior was a problem, but the mm -hmm. part of me that made those choices needed tools that she didn't have and needed information that she didn't have. If you have a framework for dialoguing with all of the parts of yourself, with curiosity, with compassion, then you're going to be able to affect change and you're going to be able to affect sustainable change instead of white-knuckling your way through your life. Yeah, you talk about self-parenting, right? It's almost like you've got these little kids inside you that all want to do different things, and you don't want to reject them no more than you would reject your own children, but you do want to manage them and talk to them and kind of help them along. So how can we self-parent ourselves through a lack of motivation or a self-destructive behavior? Sure. If you look at the parenting literature, this is the same concept, like authoritarian parenting, that stern, do as I say, not as I do. We know that does not work. That creates compliant right. children who are going to later on end up in a therapist's office. 
We also know that permissive parenting, do whatever you want. You want to do that, have that. That doesn't work either. What we know works is authoritative parenting, where the parent is firm and boundaried and knows that their role is not to be friends, but to be parents, but nevertheless is compassionate and attuned to the child. And doing this on ourselves with ourselves is the same way. So if I'm not feeling motivated to get off my couch, I could do the authoritarian thing and yell at myself. That Mm -hmm. might create compliance, but that'll have blowback. I could just give myself permission to be a slug, and that's going to have consequences. But an authoritative self-parenting approach would be, all right, Britt, I know right now we're comfy, and I know right now it would be so much easier to not do the thing than to do the thing. But I'll tell you what, we're going to make it really small. Here are three little baby micro things. Of these three, which one do you choose? And that's love and logic parenting that you can do on asking the kids, do you want broccoli or do you want asparagus? It's like kids eating vegetables one way or another. But Uh when we have the perception of choice, that settles down (laughs) our sense of helplessness and overwhelm, which is going to settle our anxiety, which is going to free up the physiological bandwidth to get off the damn couch and to do the thing. That's funny. So you really are, it is kind of playful almost the way you can treat this part of yourself like a child that needs to feel like it has some control, that needs to make a choice. That's, That's kind of fun. Lastly, in this section, I really like this idea of shadow snacks that you talk about. Can you tell me what a shadow snack is? (laughs) So this goes back to when you want to do something self-destructive. It's like if I want to go and just rage and burn stuff down, having Uh a kale smoothie or doing a Peloton workout or anything like that is not going to get that job done. And so shadow snacks are just conscious ways we permit the destructive impulses in ourselves to Uh get just a little bit of that need met in a non-consequential way. So watching a really violent whatever on TV is a way of accessing a shadow snack. Anything that you do that's a little bit of the thing, but not Uh the total thing. Like, no, you can't go do cocaine, but I'm going to let you DoorDash donuts and just lay here and eat the donuts and be covered in powdered sugar watching really bad TV. I'm going to let you do that. So shadow snacks are kind of coming up with small, inconsequential ways of letting our destructive impulses have a little bit of what they want. So listeners, what's your shadow snack of choice? Mine's probably chewing gum, but pick your own poison. It's a clever way to distract that part of yourself that's not fully on board with whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. So figure that out and then come back tomorrow when we'll wrap up our chat with Brit and serve up one final pointer on how to get unstuck. And don't think you have to remember all these ideas that we're giving you. You can go back and refresh your memory anytime using our Next Big Idea app. Download it from the App Store or Google Play Store, and you'll find tons of tools to help you with your motivation, creativity, productivity, and lots more. I'm Michael Kovnat. See you tomorrow.